to the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. I am Sonny Bunch, culture editor at the Bulwark. I'm very pleased to be rejoined by Chris Fenton. Chris uh, has been on the show before. We, we talked about China's influence in Hollywood uh, and his book, Feeding the Dragon, Inside the Trillion Dollar Dilemma Facing Hollywood, the NBA, and American Business. Uh, it's, a, it's a must-read book if you are interested in the intersection of uh, China, the NBA, Hollywood, all of this stuff that is going on right now. Um, uh, thank you for being back on the show, Chris. Yeah, my pleasure. Always humbled about it. Uh, and you, you. before we get started, you, you had mentioned a Twitter. What's, what's your Twitter handle, just to, to tell the people? Um, I'm at the Dragon Feeder. Um, I love the interaction with that, that small community. It's not as big as yours, but it's um, fun. Been doing it the last year. And, um, and then I also have a podcast called Feeding the Dragon, too, where we, we get a little deeper in a lot of these issues that are going on between the U.S. and China. Yeah. So I, the reason I wanted to have you back on the show is because we're, we're at a very kind of interesting moment in the interaction between Hollywood and China and uh, and, and with the Oscars that had just happened. Specifically, there, there, there were two things that, that happened that I think are worth mentioning and kind of diving into. The first is that uh, the uh, because a one of the documentary films, one of the short documentaries, was about the Hong Kong protests. The show was not shown in China. You could not watch. You could not watch the Academy Awards in China, um, which is interesting in and of itself. Um, but the second thing is that Chloe Zhao, who uh, was born in China, who is a is I still I believe still a Chinese national, um, won Best Director, first woman of color to win you know Best Director at the at the Oscars, uh, first Chinese woman to wear, win Best Director at the Oscars, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and notice of this was blacked out in China. Why? Why are they Why are they so afraid of letting people know about Chloe Zhao's win? Wow, the the Chloe controversy is really, really interesting, and there's so many different layers to it. And by the way, thank you so much for covering this stuff as well as you do. It's great, and I feel like you come from it at it in an unbiased sort of nonpartisan way because this is an issue that affects both red and blue, and it's super, super important that we deal with it over the next few years as China pushes towards its China 2025 plan. The Chloe issue, to me is super nuanced because if you look at Nomadland, which I which I watched and I, I, I know you saw it too, it's a beautiful film. It's fantastic. Um, I don't know if it would have gotten the attention um, it got this year during a, a normal course of year with all the different movies that come out typically, but um, I'm glad it won as many awards as it did. And what it does is it showcases a really interesting system that's left a lot of people behind. And if you look at the way the CCP has sort of governed what type of uh, content from the outside has come into their borders and they've allowed viewed by their populace, a lot of the content tends to be like that. Like if, for instance, you look at House of Cards, which by the way, no studio monetized here in the United States, but the CCP allowed it to spread rapidly through the black markets in China mm -hmm. because people loved it. And it showcased a very, very dirty and messy system of government, which is democracy. And they love that type of messaging. Nomadland could have been the same thing. But there's a huge insecurity about Chloe and sort of what she's doing in today's world in the eyes of the CCP that it bothers them. And we can get into that. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I know that, uh, you know, a few years back she had said something about, you know, China being a, a land of lies or something. And she says she was misquoted and, you know, et cetera. But, but I do think it's I, it shows a real insecurity on behalf of the CCP and their the system that they have uh, going. Because as you mentioned, Nomadland is the sort of movie that is deeply critical of capitalism. It's deeply critical of America. You know, you look at, you could easily show this to people in China and say, look, they're old people pooping buckets. That's like how they have to live because they don't have the wonderful protections of, you know, Chairman Xi or whatever. But And, and yet, because of that one statement years ago, total blackout. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. And by the way, there's a nuance to it that no one's talking about, which is where did the pressure come on some of these publications from back many years ago that had these quotes where they took them off of the websites and you can't see those quotes anymore. And that's something that happened outside of China's borders. Yeah. And I'm very curious what happened to those free speech rights of the journalism outlets for that. Explain explain further what happened here. My understanding is that the quotes are no longer in Filmmaker magazine. If you go to their website, it's just not there anymore. Yeah, correct. And I, I mean, who's pressuring them to take that out? I mean, is that Chloe's people? And didn't she say that on the record? And why are we allowing that type of erase, uh, you know, erasing of of record that journalists actually kept and published? That's number one. But number two is, I don't really think what she said is the issue. I think that's a symptom of a cold. I think the cold is you were born and raised in China. Chloe um, went off to the outside world, got educated, learned the craft of filmmaking, and then excelled at it. She's a tremendous filmmaker. And she actually won the biggest award on the global stage. Now, if you're China, and you're trying to keep 1.4, or your Chinese Communist Party, and you're trying to keep 1.4 billion people just happy enough that they don't revolt. You want them to feel a lot of pride, nationalistic pride, in what their country represents and what their government is doing to make their country the best in the world. And if Chloe decides, after all those accolades and all that education and all that experience and expertise, to continue living outside of China's borders, that's a blemish on the CCP. It is a face issue. And unless she does what Yao Ming did, which did, you know, he did the same thing, conquered the global stage, but came back to the homeland. I believe Chloe has to do the same thing. Otherwise, the cold never goes away. That's a really interesting point. I haven't heard anybody bring this up before. Why don't we, let's talk a little bit more about that, because, I mean, it, I remember reading in your book, you know, you, you talk about uh, one of the things that... China hoped to do by having um, uh, Looper and other films, uh, you know, with, with made partly in China with, with Chinese crews, etc., was teaching the Chinese film uh, makers how to make Hollywood quality films. Um, is there not do, do they do they simply not see that sort of advantage with uh, with with Chloe Zhao living in America? I mean, what what's the what's the dynamic there like? No, I don't even think it has to do with the filmmaking industry of China itself. I think it literally is a, a symbolism of, oh, once you know, get to a, a certain ability or an opportunity to study abroad, master your craft abroad, and actually find your glory abroad, if you want to stay there rather than here, 
you must be saying that you like it there better, that there's a better form of government there. There's better freedoms there. There's better things that allow you to be aspirational and achieve there rather than coming back to your homeland. And why isn't she coming back to her homeland? Does she have problems with the government? Does she have problems with the system? Does she have problems with just living in China itself? And the government has a real hard time relaying that message to their populace and saying, yeah, I know she lives there, but you know we're the best country on earth and I don't know why she's there, but let's tout how amazing she is and how fantastic she is. I think that's the push and pull that they're dealing with. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, do you think that the, I mean, uh, you're not in Chloe Zhao's camp, so it's hard to say, but I mean, do you think that there there's any chance that she does move back to, to China? Do you think that they will put pressure on her family who still lives in China, who has business dealings in China to, to try and get her to, to come back? I don't know if she's been on the wrong side of the CCP to have a family in jeopardy per se. I'm not sure if that translate in this instance. Obviously, there's mm -hmm. a lot of situations where that does become a real problem and a real peril for certain people living uh, overseas. I think, I mean, from I, I've been questioning a lot of people around her what's going on. And obviously, I've offered any sort of advice I can give to which, you know, um, is just obviously as a layman watching this thing. But I do believe that she enjoys being here and I don't see her going back. So then the question is, is how can she uh, further her career from what's already a pinnacle of achievement? And the question that I posed on Twitter the other day was, will, will anybody with big business in China hire her for a film that should have big business in China. I know she's flirting around a bunch of Netflix projects, which makes sense because Netflix mm -hmm. doesn't have a presence in China. She could probably do the same thing with Amazon, but I bet you Apple is not gonna be working with her and I can guarantee Disney wish they didn't with the Eternals coming out. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that because that's the big uh, that's the, the 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 big kind of elephant in the room right now. Chloe Zhao has directed a film that she won Best Director for, a film uh, that has won has won Best Picture now. Um, she, before any of this happened, she went and directed Eternals for Marvel uh, in in the the whole Disney uh, the Disney sphere, um, and. Now Disney is faced with a situation where they have somebody who is uh, persona non grata is probably not quite the right term, but pretty close uh, as the figurehead and the face of this uh, next entry in the Marvel franchise. Uh, Disney has to be freaking out a little bit, right? Well, I mean, it, Marvel is near and dear to me. As you can see over my shoulder, right. I got Iron Man 3, the Chinese poster there. And that was a really interesting movie because prior to us making that deal, this um, Chinese company I worked with where we made a collaborative effort between the U.S. and China on that film, their highest grossing movie was Iron Man that made $20 million in that market. Then Iron Man 3 did $125 million, And Marvel has never looked back. I mean, the last Avengers movie did almost uh, what 650 million just yeah. in that market alone so to date marvel is the most it's the most valuable ip on earth in china hands down right yeah. more than anything that's disney um you know born and raised ip star wars so, movies don't translate over there star wars only, movies, only marvel on, yeah. only marvel so and and by the way even pixar doesn't really generate the type of revenue that 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 the marvel movies do so 
it's a really interesting problem. And I think Disney has always done a, a good job of just hoping news cycles pass over, geopolitical controversies sort of flame out, and they just stay quiet on the issue. I've noticed they're staying very quiet on this issue now. I wouldn't be surprised if they had something to do with Chloe's speech the other night, which sort of had some subtle loyalty to China hints in it without turning off the viewers, even though it seemed like there weren't enough viewers watching the thing the other night. But um, it's a very, very precarious position for them because if Eternals doesn't work, is that going to spill into the rest of the IP? And that's something Kevin Feige and his team have done such an amazing job at doing, which was placating both the China market, the U.S. market, and the rest of the markets around the world so well without having to do things that were so kowtowing for, for the CCP. And it's a, it's, it would be a shame to see all that effort um, tarnished by something like this. Is... is... Disney in a bit of trouble in China anyway, because, I mean, if you look at how Mulan did pretty poorly, um, which had to do with the the thanking the you know organization that was running the concentration camps in, in the Xinjiang province. Right. Uh, and then Ray, Ray and the Last Dragon does not do particularly well. And now they've got this Eternals problem with Chloe Zhao. I, 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 the the real politic uh person inside of me is saying China is trying to force a divorce here between Disney and Hollywood and China in order to ensure the primacy of their own products. I mean, am I am I reading too much into this or is this just like a series of coincidences? Well, remember the Mulan problem, the 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 Xinjiang province problem was disclosed here in the United States and it became a sort of a problem that the West was having issues with, mm-hmm. right? Um, China didn't care about those Xinjiang province cards and the, the end credits. Um, what the issue was with Mulan in China, which was something that I talked to some of our mutual friends about who were involved with the project, including the late J.C. Spink, um, I said, what? Why are you guys making that movie? Like the Chinese have made that movie so well, so many times in local language with all the relevancy of the local industry being involved. Why why tackle that from a Hollywood perspective? It's just going to be something that they feel like isn't authentic to them. And then on top of it, it's going to sort of be throwing in the face of the West, you know, this Chinese legend and all this kind of stuff. And by the way, as time progressed from when they started developing that movie, the U.S.-China relationship got really bad. So the idea of the U.S. market embracing something with so many Chinese faces on it, et cetera, and, and sort of conflating with that with the problem that we have with the Chinese Communist Party seemed like that might be a reality. So that didn't work because they really tried to placate a market with something that was almost impossible to placate that market with. And then it mm-hmm. didn't placate any other market. Raya is another one that's sort of interesting that, you know, the ASEAN countries and a lot of the mythology and legends of those countries are those countries specific, right? right. Like to place everything in the Asia canvas and say, oh, well, it's Asian, so it's going to work in China, it's going to work in Singapore, and it's going to work in Vietnam, it's going to work in Japan is sort of a wrong mentality. And I think that's where they, they stepped in the wrong sort of idea and strategy with Raya. And I don't want to be a backseat driver. Like for me, I I respect what they're trying to do, which is really integrate the Disney brand and company into the cultural fabric of China. 
But you got to realize that country's been around 5,000 years. That's not an easy bubble to pop through. And my argument is that Hollywood should just go back to making great movies. Just tell mm -hmm. great stories, put them on screen. The ones that really resonate and are relevant to China, they'll work over there. And the ones that aren't, they won't. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, do you think there's there's an element of pandering here? One of one of the things that uh, one of my one of my co-hosts mentioned on another show is that the Disney is approaching Disney and and other other Western Hollywood uh, companies are approaching China almost how they would the kind of I, I I I hate all of these buzzwords, but kind of as they would the identity politics left in America. They say, look, here's a movie with Chinese faces in it. Here, here's a movie about Mulan. Here is a movie directed by a Chinese woman. Um, and, and all of those things are kind of flopping. Uh, they are not, they are not, you know, finding, finding the right audience or getting the right press or like meeting approval of the Chinese, uh, censor boards. I, I do, do, are, is this the wrong tactic? Is this, should they, should they just go back to, like you say, making, making good, big movies? Well, the answer to your final question is yes. <laughs> yes. And yeah. I would say, Sorry. unfortunately, and you read my book, I mean, we spoiled it a little bit because, you know, with Looper, we created a extended China cut. We had um, Summer Shing in the movie and, and play, played her up as if she was this major role and she actually wasn't really. And then we had Wong Kashi in, in Iron Man 3. And we talked quite a bit about how we were shooting so much of the movie in China, but we actually only did second unit there. So a lot of that really worked back then. It got a lot of mm -hmm. wind to our back. Right. It made people excited on a nationalistic basis that Hollywood was coming in some respects to the China market and incorporating China into the movies. That was really exciting. But as you cut to 10 years later, that excitement, they're jaded to. Now it looks pandering. And I do feel like maybe Disney, and by the way, these movies gestate over many years. So, you know, it might have been a good idea when it first started. But by the time the movie's released, you know, that market changes sort of in dog years. I mean, it is accelerating quickly as far as how it changes, how it adapts, what consumer sentiment is and all that other kind of stuff. So Disney just sort of got the timing off on it. Yeah. Have you in your in your discussions with with uh, folks in Hollywood, have you gotten any sense that the uh, Chinese blockbusters that are doing so well over there are getting any penetration here outside of, you know, kind of a, a handful of urban centers? Yeah, I don't. Well, look, and for how bad sentiment is towards the word China and the Chinese, and by the way, once again, we're not talking about Chinese people here when we talk about right. some of the issues the U.S. has with China. We're talking about the Chinese government and that the Chinese people did not vote for that government. But if you look at the sentiment towards China just in general here in the United States of America, I don't see much of an excitement to go out and see something that's authentically authentically Chinese, unless they're Chinese nationals happen to live here or first generation Americans that are Chinese that are interested. The same thing can be said and is reciprocated on the China side. It's not just the US that has problems with China. The Chinese consumer has issues with things coming in from the West. And we're seeing that whether it's the Nike, their Hugo Bosses or Adidas's and, and, and everything else, or we're seeing it with movies that just simply aren't resonating with them anymore from Hollywood because they just feel too American. Now, King Kong, a lot of people are saying, see, Hollywood's still alive in China. This is great. But I would argue that 
King Kong was made and financed by a Chinese company called Wanda, which happen happens to own Legendary. So the people mm -hmm. there believe China was involved in making that, quote, Hollywood movie. And then on top of it, Hong Kong doesn't fare too well in that movie. And there's a lot of symbolism in that. Well, I so I wanted to pick your brain on this. Uh, thank you for reminding me, because this was something that jumped out to me as well. I remember, uh, I remember when the... Uh, I think it was the second to last Transformers movie came out. There's a whole sequence in Hong Kong where like the Chinese military shows up and helps defend the, the, the city of Hong Kong from the Decepticons. Right. Um, and there, and there's like a very specific point to that. It's, it is, it is, you know, uh, Michael Bay saying here is the Chinese protector of, of Hong Kong. And in this movie, Hong Kong gets destroyed. I mean, Hong Kong just gets messed up from start to finish and I, I was curious what the what the like kind of uh, you know Beijingology of that that uh, you know like Kremlinology, but Beijing, right? I'm making up words here. Um, but like what what that actually what that actually looks like from your POV, because I it 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 is a huge difference in how the city is treated in a big, huge blockbuster uh, type thing that the world is going to see. Well, there's a lot of interesting nuance to the symbolism, I think. And by the way, the film, a lot of the filmmakers involved are probably mutual friends of you and I. I know some of the producers really well. They're American, but they happen to work for a company that's financed by China. So there's certain directives that they may or may not have to follow creatively. When you look at Hong Kong and the way it was destroyed, it was destroyed by Godzilla, which is a Japanese IP, and King Kong, which is a U.S., uh, IP. So there's a little bit of symbolism in the Western alliance and, and sort of how they meddle with Hong Kong a bit. And then on top of it, there is this Hong Kong issue that has been going on between China and the rest of the world. And China, I think, makes an interesting statement just by the consumer gorging themselves on a movie that shows Hong Kong in a lot of state of peril. So um, I you know, it's hard to know exactly what was purposely put in for symbolism, but I would argue there was probably quite a bit. And it's very subtle. Like the average American that sees that movie, if I if I tell them what I just said over the last five minutes, they'd be like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't even think about that. So it's not in your face. And I think that's why the movie works. But if you dig a little deeper, you realize there might be something a little pernicious about it. Yeah. Well, and, and like, and it's also what is left out again. There's no, there's no, uh, again, I, th I just, I keep thinking about that Transformers movie where you have an actual, you know, Chinese military official saying like, we are the protectors of Hong Kong and we are here to, you know, save the day or whatever. None of that, none of that in this. It's very, um, it is, it, it is, Hong Kong is left to its, its own devices and it gets destroyed. So that's, you know, symbolism. Right. And then Transformers is interesting because that was obviously Paramount, a studio. By the way, we probably have mutual friends that were involved in that one, as I, I know some of them very well personally. But you had Paramount. You also had Hasbro. These are American companies, but they happen to have an IP that's been in the cultural fabric of China for probably 20 years plus because of those 
those old cartoons that were sort of disseminated around the populace there for a long period of time. So there was an awareness of the IP, awareness of the storylines. There was an actual uh, consumer product purchasing power that was had by the Chinese consumer in regards to those IP, um, you know, figurines and everything. So when the movies came out, they really started to gain a lot of traction. And Paramount and Hasbro were very aware of that and really placated that market better than anywhere else in the world because quite frankly those movies weren't super sophisticated films so they didn't tend to resonate as big as a blockbuster should in a lot of markets so they knew if they did it right with china they could make huge profits yeah uh let's let's go back to the oscars just for a minute i know uh i was disappointed not to hear any any mention of you know the Uyghurs and ethnic cleansing and all that, um, and we had talked about this a little bit. Were you were you surprised at all by the the silence on this issue? Well, I was secretly hoping that Do Not Split won because I thought the filmmakers there would actually say something. Maybe not on behalf of the Uyghurs, but definitely on behalf of the Hong Kong protesters, which I thought they covered really well. And by the way, with sensitivity, I didn't think that was a massive slam on China. I thought it was mm-hmm. actually a real. Um, if there's such a thing as an unbiased sort of portrayal of what was happening at that time. And I happened to be there during some of that too, which was pretty crazy on the ground in Hong Kong. Um, The Chloe situation does not surprise me whatsoever. So then it's about some of the other Oscar speeches. And I think like with a lot of things, when it comes to China, the average American or the average citizen of the, the Western world isn't thinking about China the way we need to. And I'm not saying they're an enemy of ours, but they're a real challenge that affects all of us in so many different ways. And we have to start discussing it and talking about it more and thinking about it more because quite frankly, China is accelerating towards this self-dependence and a really powerful spread its wing superpower in lightning speed. So we're running out of time. Yeah. Can Netflix and Amazon serve as a sort of bulwark against the 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 uh, CCPization of Hollywood in general? Yes, I mean they are they are they are you know separate almost in t- I, they they have no real presence there. Uh, and I'm I'm curious if you think that 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 can can work as a, a kind of place for people who are, who are not afraid of alienating China to go. I think I think you're 100% on the mark. Those are two that definitely could. I'm actually, and by the way, the title escapes me right now, I was amazed that HBO Max picked up um, a really controversial documentary on on the Wuhan virus, et cetera. Yeah. So that, that was an interesting move that affects Time Warner and AT&T. Um, if that starts to spread and people are feeling like, hey, you know what, let's do this as an industry, I think it's going to be hard for China to fight back. Like if it's one studio taking a risk, I wouldn't be surprised if you see Warner Media penalized for that movie if it ever comes out, which, by the way, it was supposed to come out in March. So I wonder if somebody found out about it that didn't approve it and suddenly it's, um, you know, put on the shelf. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, I know I know exactly the movie you're talking about, uh, and I will be curious to see if it comes out. Uh, I I think it's still on the I, I'm pretty sure it's still on the the release schedule. But um, all right, well that was pretty much everything I wanted to to ask. What is, is there anything I should have asked? What 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 should people be paying attention to? Uh, in the world of Chinese Hollywood American relations. Well, I think really what the most interesting part of oh, it's called in the same breath is the name there we of go. it. Um, 
I think what's interesting is that for mo much of my career, almost all of it, and for the last 40 years, we've seen a very muted national security issue when it came to our engagement with China. And as time has passed, uh, particularly starting with Trump pulling the fire alarm on China and then various other things that have happened. And quite frankly, if you look at the Biden administration, you would actually think that Trump might have just won the, the election because he's got a lot of hawks in there, too, when it comes to China. So um, it's interesting that national security interests have now really gained a lot of momentum in Washington, D.C. So before you had national security interests muted, you had business interests essentially driving the ship in regards to what the dynamic was between the U.S. and China. Now you have national security interests at the same level of leverage, if not more, than the business lobby. And we're seeing this clash inside the, inside the White House and inside Congress and inside the Beltway. And in fact, there's a book called Chaos Under Heaven that Josh Rogan wrote that I highly recommend mm, yeah. that covers a lot of that clash that was going on in the Trump administration. As that clash gets stronger, we're going to start to see national security interests prevail, and the business lobby is going to have to start succumbing to what new policies and what new administration directives occur. And that is an interesting dynamic to watch over the next few months. And then on top of that, I'll add the next 300 days leading into Beijing 2022 are going to be rather heated also. Yeah, I mean, there there is still uh, an ongoing debate as to whether or not the uh, the Olympics should be boycotted. I mean, what do you think? Do you, do you think that uh, America should pull the plug or 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 what? Well, I've I've written a couple op eds, one for McConish and and CNN, and another for American Thinker. So left and right cover them both. Um, my argument isn't isn't should we uh, you know boycott the Olympic or not. My argument is we have lots of leverage. I mean, China wants to pull off the perfect adult dinner party. Remember, 2008 was the, the meticulous, perfect coming of age um, platform that they built with the Beijing 2008 Olympics. This one, they're in adulthood as a superpower. They want the perfect dinner party. That means perfect attendance. So if they want us attending and they want our allies attending, we should actually put forward some requirements that we ask of them in order to get us to attend. And that's where I think we have leverage. We have 300 days and there's definitely some things that we can achieve between now and then. Yeah. Uh, Chris here, he mentioned uh, Josh Rogan's book, Chaos Under Heaven. Highly recommend checking that out. Uh, Josh is a great uh, reporter and writer and, and his book is must read. Uh, also, Feeding the Dragon by Chris Fenton, must read. You gotta, you, we gotta keep an eye on this, folks. It's a big, big issue uh, and it is not getting any smaller. Um, thank you very much for being back on the show, Chris. Really appreciate it. Uh, and all the, all the work you're doing on this issue to keep the, the attention on it high. Yeah, likewise. I'm always humbled and honored. Thanks for having me on. And I'm happy to come back anytime. Uh, we will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you then. <laughs>